morning, everyone. Isn't that a great song? You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. Boy, if we would remember those two things, we about got life licked. Welcome to Wheaton Bible Church. Balcony, are you there? All right. Hi, everybody. Good. Glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone. School has started. Summer vacations are ending. And uh, we're glad to have you back here. Uh, lots happened this summer. We had nearly 2,000 children at neighborhood Bible clubs uh, throughout the summer. We sent five or six mission teams into different parts of our nation. And uh, we, we uh, were with our Puente uh, people here. We've just had an incredible summer uh, right here. And then last week we commissioned... Uh, well, we've commissioned between 125 and 150 adults, you add the children to it, over 200 people that they're not here today because they're up at Streamwood at our new campus and they're prayer walking throughout the neighborhoods up there, praying for God to reach people. So it has just been a delightful summer. And so we welcome you back. Or if you're here for the first time, welcome home. Huh? Yeah, that's what I mean. God's people is the second home in our lives. And uh, if you're looking for God or you're coming back to God, welcome. If you don't have a church home, you do now. You're a part of us, and, and we love having you here. I want to uh, say just one thing about um, what the new uh, campus is doing. With us sending up 125 to 150 adults, uh, as the fall starts here, we need more children's teachers. We need more greeters, connect, stuff like that, because we've got to fill in the gap for all those that have left us. So if you've been wondering about that, it, there's a place for you to serve at Wheaton Bible Church. You'll go to heaven if you serve here. <laughs> no, that's not good theology. All right. Uh, <laughs> But just think about it. We're glad you're here. God be with you, and God be with us. Now, also this summer, Pastor Rob and I and, and others who have filled in have started done this series on the prophet Jeremiah, which is an Old Testament book. An Old Testament means the, the God's scriptures prior to Jesus Christ. And we're way, way back in about the year 600 B.C. Now, some people say, why do we spend so much time talking about those really old things that went on everywhere? Shouldn't we just get to Jesus and just stick with him? Well, when you're in the Old Testament, you are getting to Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But look at this verse, because if you wonder what the value of the Old Testament, and like Jeremiah is, look at this. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement the scriptures provide, we might have hope. Why do we study the scriptures prior to the life of Christ? Because we are desperately in need of endurance and encouragement and we all hunger for hope in our lives, don't we? 
So even though we're talking about things that happened 2,500 years ago, it's like it's right now today, the truths of it, as they speak into our lives. That's the promise of Scripture. So my hope for you today, as we come toward the end, Rob will finish it next week, but as we finish up Jeremiah in these two weeks, that endurance, encouragement, and hope fill you, whatever you're facing in your life. That's where we're going to go. All right, so today, we started a couple months ago with Jeremiah, age 20. Where we're going today, he's about 60. It's coming to the end, and the great devastation that he has spoken about is going to take place. Here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to do two completely different things. First, I'm going to give us a historical overview of this era in Israel's existence. Okay, so kind of the history of the, of the Jeremiah period. All right, and, 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 and there's a lot there. And then I'm going to bridge from there and I'm going to do biography about Jeremiah, what he himself has gone through in these 40 years. So I hope it'll be valuable. I have three hopes for us today. And the first one is this. I want to give you one life lesson. Bingo. I want to give you four ropes to hang on to. A plural noun there. What does Lon mean by that? I don't know. Hang on to here. Four ropes to hold you. And then finally, one P.S. that can change your life. And incidentally, P.S. here today does not mean postscript. It means pursue Savior. All right? One P.S. One life lesson, four ropes to hang on to, and one final truth that can change your life. That's where we're going. Okay, you ready? Historical flow. Jeremiah. Approximately the year 625 B.C. 625 years before Christ. Jeremiah is about 20 years old, and God says to him, I'm going to make you a prophet to the nations, and here's what you're going to say. You're going to say that the end is at hand. You're going to say that the nation of Israel, founded under David 400 years earlier, is coming to its complete end. Devastation is at hand. That is your message at age 20. He says it over and over and over and over and over to the people of Israel, and they don't believe it, and they don't want to believe it. He even gets so specific as he starts out and over those years he says, I'll even tell you how it's going to happen. A massive civilization from the northeast, Babylon, is going to bring about the destruction of the land. No, it can't happen, can't happen, can't happen. Yes, it can. Can't happen. We are God's people. Jeremiah says, I know, but we haven't been acting like it. And so devastation is coming. All right, catapult up to about the year 600 B.C., so about 25 years after Jeremiah starts his prophecy. Now we start to see it happening. Babylon has come down. They have sent frontal forces into Israel and almost every other nation, and they are a massive superpower. And wherever they go, they take over. And they start the takeover of all of Israel, what's left of it. It's already been devastated over the last hundred years or so. 
But they, what they do is they put in vassal kings who are still the kings of the land. Not so dissimilar to what the British Empire did the end of the 19th century and the early 20th. Think of India. India had its own government, right? But it was pretty much run by England until the mid-century when they became self-governing. So what happens is Israel's no longer self-governing. There are two operational forces, Israel and then Babylon is there. And they export a lot of the intelligentsia, the artists, and the leaders of the land, and they send them to Babylon. You weaken a nation by removing its leaders. Daniel was one of those. Ezekiel was one of those. And Pastor Rob last week talked about the letter Jeremiah wrote to the exiles that were in Babylon starting around the year 600. That they would prosper if they would pray for Babylon, if they would have children, if they would start businesses, etc., etc. You can flourish even when you are an exile. Meanwhile, in Israel, a lot of the intelligentsia has been taken away. A new king has been set up. His name is Zedekiah. But still in Israel, they don't believe they're going to be taken over. They are God's people. They don't believe Babylon's going to make it. Egypt or somehow God will save them because they're God's people and they start rebelling every chance they get. That takes us to where we come into the scriptures today. Twelve years later, the year is 588 B.C. And Babylon says, no more of this. And they take over everything and they destroy the nation. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 39. Jeremiah chapter 39. Again, Jeremiah is now about age 60. He's been telling the people what was going to happen for over 40 years. They just refused to always believe him. But in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1, this is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the vassal king of Judah, in the tenth month, we believe that this is January 588 B.C. January 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marches against Jerusalem with his whole army, and he lays siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. They literally take over. Look at verse 8 and following. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people. They broke down all the walls. In chapter 52, we also find out that they burned down the temple, the temple that Solomon had created 300 years earlier. They literally take over everything. That's what is happening. The people couldn't believe it. They, they just thought because they were God's people, even if they weren't following God, that God would provide, that God would take care of them. This would not happen, and it has happened, and it is devastating from top to bottom. Well, what does the king do? 
verse 4 of chapter 39. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, which Judah, just think of it as what remains of Israel, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by the way of the king's gardens, through the gate between the two walls, and they headed south and east into the desert, the Arabah, the desert. But the Babylonian army pursues them. They overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him. They took him to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then, look what happens here in verse number 6. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They killed all of the nobles that remained in Israel. And then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and marched him 700 miles to Babylon. This was obliterating destruction. How long did it take? Well, we know by the dates given in verses 1 and 2 that it looks like the, the siege began in January 588, and it didn't finish till about July of 586, about two and a half years of onslaught. Why is that important? Because much of what you hear from Jeremiah occurs the, during these two and a half years. And just imagine the war happening outside the walls, the constant bombardment that is taking place. It's like being in London during the, the Blitz. And, and it's going on the whole time. Two and a half years later, they crush through the walls and they fire everything. The whole city is obliterated. Zedekiah is caught as he tries to flee. There is no king. Zedekiah was the last of the line of David. The Davidic kingdom has ended. Or has it? Something happens 600 years later to change all that. But for them, it's all over. A couple of years in that time, Babylon then puts a governor on the throne. His name is Gedaliah. He won't be a king. He'll be a governor. And he will govern Israel. But militias that still exist will end up murdering him because they still believe they can take back the country from Babylon. Jeremiah keeps saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Finally, there's hardly anyone left. Only the very poor are left. And a few militias. And they say, we've got to go to Egypt. We've got to go to Egypt. So somewhere around the time, 586 to 580, they go to Egypt thinking that Egypt will save them. But Egypt can't save them. Babylon will conquer Egypt as well. And the nation is over. That's the history. Is there any life lesson that comes from just the history of the people of Israel? Here's what I think it is. And I was overwhelmed this week as I, I didn't, this is one of those things I didn't know until I really gave myself to the study of these passages, these chapters. I thought that in the destruction of Jerusalem and the rest of Israel, I knew it was the end of the nation. But I found three times in the passages concerning this time that God continued to said, say, even though Babylon is going to conquer you, I will take care of you. Look with me at this, would you? We're going to move real fast, those of you who have your Bibles open or turned on. Look with me to chapter 38, verse 2. 
Chapter 38, verse 2. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, the famine, or the plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They'll escape with their lives. They will live. God was promising through Jeremiah that even though the country's been conquered, the people aren't, that God will still provide for them. But they won't have it. Look at the next one, Jeremiah 38, 17. And this is Jeremiah prophesying to Zedekiah before he tries to flee. Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says, chapter 38, 17. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But he wouldn't do it. He would not surrender to live. He would not surrender his nation in order for it to survive. He kept saying, this is Israel. This is our nation. This is my nation. We will survive. It was self-rule or destruction. Here's the third one. Look with me at verse uh, now 20. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I'm telling you, and it'll go well with you, and your life will be spared. He wouldn't do it. And then a couple of years later, after the city is obliterated and the people start, the remaining people start thinking about, are they just going to try to go to Egypt? Turn with me now to chapter 42, chapter 42, verse 10. If you stay in this land, verse 10, chapter 42, if you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I've inflicted on you. And now look down at the, uh, just the end of verse 11. For I am with you, I will save you, and I will deliver you from Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Three times, even during the destruction, God is saying to the people, if you will just surrender to Babylon, I'll still be your king. I'll still take care of you. You can peacefully coexist. I mean, it had been working for Daniel. It had been working for Ezekiel. Pastor Rob, last week, when he preached out of chapter 29, Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles that had been sent to Babylon way back in 600. They were flourishing. He told them how to flourish. Did you know most of the canon or the organization that we have for the whole Old Testament was done in Babylon by those exiles? National governments don't rule us. God does. There was the promise. And here's what it says to me. This is the one, the big life lesson. God is with you and will help you even when all hell is breaking loose everywhere else. God is with you. He will not leave you even when all hell is breaking loose. That was the promise. But... <coughs> when we choose self-rule, when we choose national rule, ethnicity superiority, masters of our own destinies, 
then we're almost guaranteed obliteration. We have a slide I'm going to put up now. Here's the lesson. Human freedom is flawed. Only God dependence truly brings freedom. Your way is flawed. Only God's way brings to freedom. This week, there's a big thing going on in Nevada. It's called Burning Man. It's a huge festival. It's been going like for 20 years, and they're out there in the heat. There are over 75,000 people. My son's actually working at it. And if you study the philosophy behind the Burning Man event, the Burning Man event is all about self-expression, self-rule, self-independence. Its, it's, its theme is the independence of the human spirit. And what God says is there's no independence in the human spirit unless the human spirit is dependent upon God. That's where you find your freedom. So there's the big life lesson from the his history of Israel. Now, switching gears. Let's take a look at Jeremiah through all this stuff. And if you want to write down kind of what adds to Jeremiah, just write down three words. Rejection and suffering. From age 20 to about age 65, when we think he dies. Rejection and suffering. 45 years of rejection and ridicule. Did you know they had a nickname for Jeremiah? The people of Israel had a nickname for him. They called him, here comes old terror on every side. Here comes old terror on every side. Oh boy, here comes Jeremiah. It ain't going to be good. Ridiculed for 45 years. The, the first record we have of him being beaten is in chapter 20. He's not only beaten at that time, he's put in stocks. And he loves his people. And he loves his God, and he just wants them to know if they'll repent, this horrendous evil is not going to happen. Later, when we get into this era, 588 to 586, he's thrown into a dungeon because they said he was a traitor. He was never a traitor. Then when they bring him out of the dungeon, they keep him as a prisoner in the courtyard of the guard, it says. And he can hear all of the obliteration that's going on. And then at one point, there's, he continues to say, surrender to Babylon, surrender to Babylon, and God will take care of us. And so some soldiers go to the king and say, hey, the soldiers are losing their heart. Jeremiah keeps calling out from the courtyard, we're, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed, you got to kill him. They don't kill him. What they do then is they throw him into a cistern that's what chapter 38 is about. Turn to chapter 38. So he goes from the dungeon to the courtyard, from the courtyard to the cistern. Verse 2, chapter 38. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But if you go over to the Babylonians, you will live. Now, look with me what happens after that. Verse 4. The official said to the king, This man should be put to death. He's discouraging the soldiers who are still left in the city as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man's not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. No, he's seeking their good. The soldiers are bringing about the ruin. He's in your hands, King Zedekiah said. 
The king will do nothing to oppose you. So they take Jeremiah, verse 6, and they put him down into this deep well. Cistern is a well. And, and it's dry but not completely dry. And they lower him down into this well. And, and, and Josephus, hundreds of years later, the historian says that he, he sinks into the mud and the mud comes up almost to his head. And they just leave him there. We don't know for how long. We don't know how for long. And he's crying out, and he's still calling out to the people to give themselves over to Babylon so they can survive. And he's down there. And then this wonderful Ethiopian. As far as I can tell, Jeremiah has two friends over 45 years. And one of those is an Ethiopian guy. And he goes to the king. He says, you cannot do this to Jeremiah. And they bring him out. And the reason I'm displaying this is this is going to come into the sermon here in a few minutes. You know how they get him out? They get all these ropes, and they drop the ropes down with old rags of clothing that they have found, and they say, wrap the ropes around yourself and then put the clothing under your arms, and we'll pull you out of the mud. And then you can just see it, the slowly pulling him up, drenched with this mud for we don't know how many days, barely alive. And they lift him up so that he can live. But they don't set him free. They keep him as a prisoner in the courtyard where he hears all the devastation. Incidentally, it's during this time of the dungeon, the courtyard, the cistern, the courtyard, that he writes the Book of Lamentations. It is an epic poem. It follows the Book of Jeremiah. Five chapters, perfectly written, ordered in poetic Hebrew poetic form. It is a masterpiece, and it is the saddest thing you'll ever read in your life because he hears it, and he sees it all, and it could have, it could have, it didn't have to go this way. He suffered. He suffered greatly. He suffered another time. Look with me now in chapter 39 again. Some of you will say, this isn't suffering. Yeah, it is. 39. Look at verses 11 and 12. 39, 11 and 12. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through his general, Nebuzaradan. I'm not going to say that word again. It's too hard. I'll just call him the general. Through the general, commander of the imperial card. It says, take Jeremiah and look at what the king of Babylon says. Look after him. Don't harm him. Do for him whatever he asks. Now look over with me into chapter 40 and verse 4. Again, here's what Babylon says to Jeremiah. Today I'm freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like, and I will look after you. But if you don't want to, then don't come. But look, Jeremiah, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. End of verse 5. Then the general gave him provisions and a present and let him go. Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the governor, and he stayed with him among the people. He's been offered Babylon. He's been offered the opportunity to get out of the destruction. He's been offered the, the, the opportunity to be in the wonders over the rubble to be with the privileged instead of the poor. You know about Babylon in this era? Have you ever heard of the 
hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. We don't know exactly what they looked like, but here's a couple of pictures. This is Babylon. Show the next one. It's Babylon. Daniel's there. Ezekiel's there. All of the artists, all of the intelligentsia, they're all there. They're flourishing. It's what could have been for all of Israel, even though they were going to be conquered. But they wouldn't have it. What will Jeremiah do? Jeremiah will say no to Babylon. And he'll stay with the poor and the rubble and the brokenness and the death. Wow. The end of his suffering is about to come. After the governor that Nebuchadnezzar installs is murdered and whatever's left of Israel starts to flee toward Egypt and Jeremiah says, don't go to Egypt. You go to Egypt, you're going to be obliterated there and because Nebuchadnezzar's going to take over Egypt too and everyone will be destroyed. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. They said, we're going to do it and we're taking you with us. So he's still a prisoner. And now it's about 585 B.C., we don't know exactly when he died. And we don't know how, but legend says he was stoned to death by his own people, the remaining Jews that were in Egypt. And there he is. His remains are there somewhere. Wow. History, biography. History, biography. We all are a biography living in our history. What do we learn from Jeremiah? What do we learn? Well, overwhelmingly, can I just say this to you? Loving God with all your heart and seeking to serve Him in obedience does not guarantee you don't suffer in life. Have we got that now? I mean, we have to say it almost every week. I just continued, because you read some of those verses and it talks about blessings for those who obey. He obeyed! And he suffered more physically and emotionally, I believe, than any other God person in all of history. You say, no, no, Jesus suffered more. Jesus suffered more in three years. But Jeremiah suffered for 45 years. No guarantees. Well, are there any ropes to hang on to? Remember him being pulled out of the cistern with the ropes? Yeah, I think so. Rope number one, endurance. Remember, we started with Romans 15, 4. These things have been taught, taught to us from the past that we may learn endurance from the Scriptures. How did Jeremiah endure? Why didn't he go to Babylon? What? How? Who? There are no words for this. How? I'll tell you how. God was with him. I mean, in the first chapter, I preached this on June 5th, the first chapter of Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, I have made you a fortified city, Jeremiah. I have made you an iron pillar, and you will stand against the whole nation. And he did for 45 years, not on his strength, 
It was God with him. At one point, Jeremiah says, the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. Listen, all of us, multiple times in our lives, are going to come to the point where we recognize that our sufficiency can't be in ourselves. It's not enough. Life is too hard. We desperately need the God who says he's overall, loves us, and is with us. And I think Jeremiah understood that. And he was such an emotional, melancholic. He just keeps holding on. Rope number one, God is with us. We can't endure. Rope number two, he had friends to encourage him. As far as I know, two, I already told you about the first one, the Ethiopian, who goes to the king and says, we can't leave him in the cistern. Engineers, the, the, the saving Jeremiah, it, it sounds later Jeremiah will write a special prophecy that God gives him just for that friend. That friend stuck with him through thick and thin in the muck of life. And his second friend was Baruch. From the beginning to the end, he's, he's with him and dies with him in, in, in Egypt as far as we can tell. He was the guy that wrote out all the stuff that we have in Jeremiah today. He would never leave him. I'm just so glad for that. I, I was watching clips of Man of La Mancha this week. I, I love Broadway musicals. You know, Cervantes' thing of, of, of uh, Don Quixote. I am my Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha, destroyer of evil am I. I kind of saw him like Jeremiah. That's why I did this. But he had his buddy. And even, even when Don Quixote starts going crazy, Sancho Panza never leaves his side. This week when I started this study, I, I usually, when I'm preaching, I start working on it early Monday morning. Marie got up a couple hours after I'd been studying. She was sitting out on the deck, and I go outdoors, beautiful day outside, and she looks at me and she goes, what's the matter, honey? She knows that I'm, I'm, I'm a melancholic. And I look at her and I go, honey, it's Jeremiah. And she goes, oh, it's pretty bad. I go, it's, it's really bad. <laughs> and then she says something like, well, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, let's have some coffee. I don't know what she did, but she was there. <laughs> the next day I was still down about it. I was in an all-day staff meeting. That, that'll wipe anybody out. There's not much in life that could be more uh, 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 suffering than six to, wait, well, we had 12 hours of staff meetings, yeah, yeah. And so I'm also thinking Jeremiah this whole time, and I think I'm in this, I'm in this staff meeting and I'm preaching on Jeremiah. So I call my dear mentor friend, Leighton Ford, out in Carolina. I said, Leighton, he goes, what's the matter? I said, I'm, I'm feeling really kind of sad, and since you have a personality like I have, I know that you can understand. He says, what's wrong? He says, and I said, i got to preach Jeremiah this weekend. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and he goes, I wish you didn't, Lon. It doesn't sound like it's good for you right now. <laughs> and I go, I know, but i got to do it. And he says, well, I'm praying for you right now. And then he, this was great. He says, hey, promise me something. I said, what? He says, don't read Job after this. The great poet Keats said, I would not live without the love of my friends. 
That's part of what a church is about. That's part of what small groups are about is to develop lifelong relationships of people who've got your back. That's a rope to hold on to. It encourages us. Third, the third rope is to realize Egypt can't save you. Egypt, Egypt is a symbol of whatever we look to that is our salvation other than God. Israel had always looked to Egypt. Abraham uh, had gone to Egypt thinking it could help him. Uh, the, the people in, 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 in the time of Moses believed Egypt could help them. Solomon married an Egyptian wife thinking that that alliance would help him. And now the remnant is fleeing to Egypt again. Egypt represents choosing something other but God. And may I just say, and last time I'll mention it, the United States of America and whoever its next president is, is not going to save you. We make too much of nations and not enough of the kingdom of God. That's a rope. Finally, finally, rope number four, hope. Remember, endurance, encouragement, and hope. Hope is mostly about heaven. All those great promises in the scriptures that we see, like where it says, he heals all our diseases. Have you found that that's not true? When Jeremiah promises a future and a hope, have you sometimes found that the future doesn't seem very hopeful? Well, look at this. Hope is mostly about heaven. You see, God created us as eternal beings and he put us on earth. And this is about the amount of existence that we have on earth. And while we're here, he is with us. And while we're here, he gives us blessings in the midst of the pain. But at the end of it all, there ain't a soul that doesn't get broken. But that's not the end of the story. This is. And it's in eternity where every tear is wiped from our eyes. And it's in eternity where there is no more pain and injustice when all the promises come completely and forever true this is now this is coming you know how I know that I have a secret You know what the PS is that can change your life? The PS is that the one who was also lifted up on a cross and died, then three days later rises into eternal life. You know what I know? He's with me in this part. And I can't.
get to hang out with him in this part forever and ever. Amen. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Look at this verse. Jesus, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Come to him if you have not. Receive him into your life. He will be with you now and he will be with you forever. Let's pray. Lord, while our friend Jeremiah dies and doesn't rise from the dead, Jesus Christ dies and does. And so we see that the end is not the destruction of Jerusalem. The end is the cross of Jesus Christ and it ushers in the grand beginning. Oh Lord, fill us with endurance, encouragement, and hope that we are not alone. Amen and amen.